Welcome to the Sharkpreneur Podcast with Kevin Harrington and Seth Green. Kevin Harrington is the inventor of the infomercial, one of the original sharks from the hit TV show Shark Tank, and has generated over $5 billion in TV and digital direct response sales. Seth Green is the world's first trusted authority on cutting edge direct response marketing, a best-selling author, and the only three-time Marketer of the Year nominee. On the podcast, Kevin and Seth interview sharkpreneurs who share straight talk on what it takes to explode your business. Why do so many businesses struggle while others seem to explode overnight? Do you wish you had the secret to this type of exponential growth? Now, I've scaled more than 20 businesses to over $100 million, and it's not just luck. In my new book with Mark Tim, Mentor to Millions, you'll learn the repeatable framework I use in all my business ventures for massive success. Order at KevinMentor.com and get over $1,000 in bonuses. Head to KevinMentor.com. Welcome to the podcast. This is your host, Seth Green. 80% of business owners want to stop working in their business in the next five to 10 years, but most have not planned for that transition. My special guest, Lori Barkman, is a business transition Sherpa. With her firm, Small.Big, she advises owners on having more valuable, sellable businesses. And as a partner with Stony Hill Advisors, a M&A firm, she guides them through the complex process of letting it go. Lori, thanks so much for joining us. Seth, thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. All right. So let's go back in time a little bit. How did you get started? I have a career in business, really growing top line of companies in marketing and strategy roles. And about six, five, six years ago, the company I was with got acquired by a very large transportation and logistics company that you would all know. And going through that M&A process for a closely held family-led company, third-generation business, was really interesting to see from the inside. And that's kind of what got me on this path of thinking about how do closely held companies go through a transition like that. This particular company was over hundred years old. And so if we are entrepreneurs and we're building, we're building value, we're building value in our companies, how do we go about building that value and then one day letting it go? So this whole idea around transition and succession and then maximizing the value we can get through, these, through this value creation process became essentially the basis of what I do today. All right. I'm sure the longer version's in a book somewhere, or it should be. I mean, you were former CEO of a $100 million company with an exit to Fortune 50. So how did you start seeing that most business owners have no plan for that transition? I was working with a law firm and in doing so, got connected in with the community of professionals who support business owners accountants, again, the lawyers, the wealth managers. And I learned about the Exit Planning Institute. I got a certificate from EPI. EPI does some great studies. They have some awesome data. Other organizations have done some surveys of business owners. One of the things that we can kind of chuckle about is 100% of business owners are going to leave their company at some point, right? That, that's an absolute truth. Right, whether and you so, want to leave or whether, not, theoretically. You're, you're going to leave at some point. So we can cut, chuckle at that. But the, the part that's sort of serious here is what we say is either boots on or boots off. And so only 20% of business owners have a written formalized plan 
to transition. So that's not a very high percentage, given that we all know this is going to happen at some point. And I'm not talking about contingency plans. It's really important too. Like if you're incapacitated, of course, now, even with COVID, right, it's even more important. Who's going to run your business day to day? If you're in the hospital, you're not able to be there. So the contingency side is important, but this is really the longer term side of what's your vision for retirement? Or do you want to start another company? Do you want to be a serial entrepreneur? And so how do you take the time to really create value? And again, as you said in my intro, this, this process of letting it go. And so what I think about a lot with owners is where are they today? How do we measure where they are today? How do we benchmark that? How do we get a qualitative and quantitative perspective on that from three different aspects? The personal side, the personal readiness, the business side, right? the business readiness, how ready is that business to, to be involved in a transition of some sort? And then the financial readiness. And those three aspects, those three legs of the stool is how I started to really understand and put together this, uh, this practice uh, with working with business owners to help them not only create value, but then benefit in that transition and process of letting it go. Now, other than the obvious of not having a plan at all, what are some of the biggest mistakes business owners make when it comes to that transition? A lot of business owners don't have a strategy. They don't have a strategy to really build value and they don't know. Well, there's a couple things. One is the strategy to build value. They're, they're doing what they're doing. They're going on the same path. If, if code has taught us nothing, it's showing us that you can't keep doing what you're doing and getting what you've always got. The market dynamics are too fast and, and furious. And that's part, that's part of it. So building value in the business has to do with uh, creating products and services that ultimately you have a competitive advantage over and that you have something compelling that someone else is going to want to acquire, whether it's a B2B business or B2C. The other side of this is building a business that can thrive without you. A lot of business owners make the mistake of thinking they are the competitive advantage. There's one woman I spoke with, she has a marketing agency. And when we went through a business assessment and she understood some of the value drivers of internally, what do we control? Excuse me, <clears throat> what do we control? She then understood, oh my gosh, she said, I'm standing in the way of my business being worth more. And I said, yeah, you're right, <laughs> you are. Because she thought she was the main, she was the main thing. She was it. And she's a creative and she connects with clients and she's the rainmaker. Those are three aspects of a challenge or a risk should your business be viewed not transferable. If, a, if, a, if the next buyer is going to take over your company and they can't run it without you, is that really a transferable business? What does that mean for risk? What does that mean for value? And it's inherently, uh, it's viewed as more risky and less valuable. Absolutely. So how do we make that step? How do we make it? So again, most of us probably start, had a job before we had a business. We may have had the entrepreneurial seizure where we said, don't like my boss or I can do that better. And we knew how to do the thing. And we went and started a business, not knowing how to run a business, just knowing how to be the technician. So then how do we kind of graduate to the next level where there are, where someone who bought our business doesn't say, I'm going to buy this. It's going to fall apart in three months because I'm not you. How do we kind of clone ourselves? How do we get it to the point where the business doesn't need us to run? And then that opens us up, obviously, in the exit strategy to a whole new network of professional investors as opposed to somebody else who wants to buy our job. Yeah, absolutely, Seth. There's a, there's a number of factors there in what you just asked about. If we break it down, there's, there's essentially eight core drivers of value, things that we can control. One of them is the size of the business. So a, a smaller business that's, let's say, under 5 million in revenue 
is inherently a more risky business for this very reason that you're asking. Typically, and even let's say uh, uh, the main street businesses, the lifestyle businesses under a million in revenue, it's typically all about the, the founder, the entrepreneur, the, the CEO, the owner, that person, because they're so involved, they're customer facing, they're bringing in the business and they're modifying their products or services to make those clients happy. And it feels like a nice virtuous circle, but it's actually not. It's to their detriment because they don't have perhaps the people around them. I call that person the, the two IC, the second in command. Do they have someone else that could be boots on the ground should they be out of the business for 90 days? Do they have a team around them? So there's certainly the human capital side. There's also what we call the structural capital, which are the processes, the tools, the systems, your marketing stack, your tech stack, all those things that go into how you do what you do to deliver value. So the combination of your people, the tools and processes, the systems, do you have your processes documented? Are they well communicated in your training? I did a strategic planning session with a very small client this past week. They're about five people on the leadership team. They're about a 20 person agency. And this was exactly the conversation. They do a pretty good job. They have a lot of things buttoned up, but there's so much more they wanna do. They can't scale until they have their consistent processes documented. And they have the they have the vision to triple their business in over a three to five year period. So it's a very exciting thing for companies to get that flywheel going without owner realizes it's not all about them. And, and so I think that's a big part of it. Absolutely. How do you, because it's not just about the physical actions of how do we teach somebody else or how do we get somebody else to do what we're doing? How do we identify what we're doing? There's a bigger mindset shift there, right? In terms of the, how do I get it out of my head, out onto paper, pixels and plastic and all of that? How do you help with the mindset? The mindset is so important, Seth. I'm glad you brought that up. It's a really important step. If an owner is not there, this won't go far at all. They have to be understanding what their business can be for them. Maybe they're not going to the baseball games they would like to go to for their kids. Maybe they're working 70 hour work weeks and their health is taking a toll. They're not, when's the last time they took a vacation? So that goes back to the personal readiness that I was mentioning. And I have a, I have a personal readiness questionnaire that we, that we can give online. I'm, I'm certified through the value builder system and we have some wonderful tools. One of which is this, we call it the pre-score, which is the personal readiness to exit. Now, I don't say that you have to take this readiness assessment because you're ready now. I, I think this is really important to take the assessment, even if, especially if you're just starting to think about it. Why? Why is this important? Because ultimately, if you are happier in running your company, you're going to have a better lifestyle. Your people around you are going to be happier, your family for sure. Financially, you're going to be creating a more economically uh, beneficial enterprise. So isn't that a good thing? So again, I just want to couch it that, hey, I'm not saying get to sell your business next year. If you do, great. Let's talk about that. But if you are want to eventually, through this assessment, we're going to ask you a bunch of questions. What do you envision? Do you want to have the role where you can be chairman, take a step back, put your feet up on the desk? Again, do you want to start another company? What is it that your vision, your goal is? And let's work our way backwards. And by the way, too, you can have multiple ideas. The more options you can create for yourself, the better off you're going to be. Why? Having choices is a good thing. Each choice, each door you open might have different benefits to you. It might be, hey, I want to sell to the highest bidder. Great. Or it might be, I want to transition to my family. 
How do I make that happen? It might be, I'm considering selling my business to an ESOP so that my employees can benefit from the financial gains and the growth of this company and that my family get a second bite of the apple in the future. So I'm a big proponent of, of owners and entrepreneurs having options so that they can make informed choices in the future. And so it all ties back to what are their goals. And that's where typically we start. And then once you've done that and they've got the right mindset, they're building the systems, they're building the procedures, they're getting it set up so that they don't, they can work more on their business as opposed to in their business. How then do you help them get ready for sale and how do you help them find and, and talk about like there's different types of buyers, right? There's someone who wants, hey, I'm a chiropractor. I just got out of chiropractic school. You're a chiropractor. I want to buy your clinic and give myself a job. And then there's like a strategic partner or a professional investor. Talk a little bit about the different types of buyers and how they differentiate. Yeah, absolutely. This is a great conversation. It's going to lead into what I call value relativity. So in the, in the realm of the possible, who are the types of buyers out there? There are three core categories, strategic, financial, and related. Strategic buyers are, uh, they could vary. It could be competitors, people in your market space. They might be in the value chain, either upstream or downstream. They could be consolidators. So typically these might be privately uh, held companies. They might be publicly traded companies but they are distinguished by the financial buyer. The financial buyer is an institutional fund put together like a private equity group. It could be venture capital and it could be this money coming together. And these uh, types of firms are looking for uh, platform deals. They might looking for, be looking for a signature anchor platform and then do acquisitions and tuck-ins. And if so, that tends to look more like a hybrid between strategic and financial. And, and the other distinction between strategic and financial staff is that typically the multiples paid by each of those groups will vary. And so the third group, which is related parties, can be family. It can be management, people who are more insiders with the business, that related can mean literally related, uh, or people who know something about it. And ESOP could, which is a, uh, which is a, a, a institutional type of thing. You have to raise money to pay for it through outside lending, but they are related parties. So it does fall under that third category, but those that's been broad strokes that there's three core buckets. So this concept of value, value relativity is really important. As I said earlier, if a company is trying to understand what they're worth today in the market, in the private market, the answer is there's a lot of answers. A private, a private company can have a determination of value that's infinite because it's really how is risk and benefit perceived by the potential buyer. So that's where, so that's where we start. However, that said, we do have ways to estimate what they might be worth and we can do a range of value. One of the things that we start out with is the value builder assessment. I take an assessment of the business, they answer some financial questions based on these eight drivers and it gives us a range of value. It also gives us a potential of what that range might be, should we work on improving some of these core aspects of the business? In a lot of cases, we can see the value that of that business increase 70%, 100%, 150%. It's significant, especially when you're talking in the millions of dollars. So that's one part. The other part is, okay, if we take a step back and say, who might our likely acquirers be? In which bucket might they come from? How can we assess that landscape from a data standpoint to understand what deals have been done in our sector, in our industry, 
uh, companies around our size, revenue or EBITDA, and what can we learn from that? And so I offer the clients uh, an opportunity to learn more granularly about that. So I call it the, I call it a market value study. So it's, it's analytical. And then also I'll reach out to potential acquirers in an anonymous fashion to understand which of these value drivers are most important to them. There's, uh, I have a podcast called Succession Stories. And one of, the, one of the guests recently talked about this and how he did it over a five-year period. And he ended up pivoting the business from what was more one-time revenue, like ad hoc project-based revenue to more recurring revenue. Why did he do that? Because again, over this five-year period or so, he was having these conversations directly and they, he was understanding from them what they would determine, how they determine value. And so it's a wonderful way for me to kick off a relationship with a potential client who's thinking about selling because then we can work backwards, especially if we have the luxury of time. And, that, and I'm talking two, three years or, or more. Um, so again, this value, this value market study, this way to look at uh, what potential buyers might value and then work that back into our business from a strategic planning standpoint. You've achieved so much success and helped so many businesses. What's your biggest challenge now? Like many entrepreneurs, I think it's focus. I tend to get really interested in lots of things and I have to do my own dog fooding <laughs> to make sure that I'm spending my time most productively. And so I, I've spent some time building my own tech stack and my own processes, just as we talked earlier, and establishing a virtual team. That's also an important aspect. If you don't want to have full-time employees, that doesn't mean you can't get help. So I need my own way to scale and partner. And partnering has been a big part of that. I have amazing collaborators and partners that I, that I call part of the, the business, even though they're not literally on my team. So that's, I think, part one of this. The other side is in terms of working with clients to help them achieve the value creation goals that we talked about, I also want to see them capitalize on that. So a big part of that, Seth, has been how do I really stitch in with others' processes to scale? And that's why I became a partner with Stony Hill Advisors, because it gave me the back office for doing M&A transactions. And since then, too, I wouldn't say it's a mistake, but it's a learning on my part that, you know what, I... Because I've been through some M&A transactions doesn't mean I have the, the nuts and bolts and I wanted and I have my MBA and all of that. Um, but I did find it really important to get some additional education. I just got certified in, uh, from the Certified Mergers and Acquisitions Advisory Association. So I'm really proud about that. But I, and again, I wouldn't call it a mistake, but I think sometimes we can get so into, we know everything and we can figure it out. And I realized, you know what, it's important to bring value to my clients in a way that enables me to scale, but also brings best practices in um, and enables me to improve and, and continue to learn. Your passion is obvious. What do you like best about what you're doing? I just love things that go up to the right. <laughs> I just, I think it's so exciting to, that's even the name of the firm, right? Small that big. It's things that essentially go up to the right. And also working with people and helping them see things they haven't seen before. That's this aha moment that I just love. It's like when the light bulb goes on and I know that I've inherently, that one idea might have meant millions of dollars to them. 
is I just really get proud about that. And then obviously being tied in in their success uh, with a deal is very satisfying. I guess I'm a little bit of a deal junkie <laughs> and, and there's a fun aspect to that too. Awesome. Well, for our folks who are watching or listening, we know your time's incredibly valuable. We greatly appreciate you sharing some of it with us. Where is the best place for us to go to learn more about you? LinkedIn is a great place. You can connect with me there, Lori Barkman on LinkedIn. And also my website, which is smalldotbig.com. Lots of, lots of great resources here for you, including the Succession Stories podcast. They can listen to the show wherever they listen to podcasts as well if they want to learn about me and learn from my guests. It's a wonderful resource. And yeah, you can also email me directly if they'd like, lbarkman at smalldotbig.com. Awesome. Well, this has been Seth Green with Lori Barkman of smalldotbig.com. Lori, thanks again for joining us. Thanks, Seth. Appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, for watching or listening. We'll talk to you or see you next time. Do you need money to fund your idea, product, or service? Are you ready to take your business to the next level but need capital to get it done? Kevin Harrington has heard more than 50,000 pitches and knows how to help you make the perfect pitch to get the funding for your entrepreneurial dream. He's distilled the process down in his perfect pitch cheat sheet, and it's yours for free. Just text PITCH to him right now at 727-888-2100. Text PITCH to 727-888-2100 right now and claim your free perfect pitch cheat sheet. Text PITCH to 727-888-2100 to start funding your dream today. This show has been produced by Market Domination, LLC. To discover how you can have your own show completely done for you and turn it into a real published book and become the authority in your marketplace, go to www.marketdominationllc.com slash podcast offer. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.